Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. Today I'm joined by Mr. Jorge Gutierrez. Jorge, how are you, sir? Uh, Julian, I am super happy, super excited. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Now, if anybody should be saying thank you, it should be me. Now, I've told this story a few different times on this podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, I apologize for you guys hearing it probably the 15th or 16th time at this point. Uh, But, Jorge, I I don't know if you've heard it. Um, There was two shows. Well, one show, one movie that was extremely important when I got out of the military in 2016. I was in the Navy for about seven and a half years. And uh, the first one was regular show. Right. So I spent a lot of time away from my family, Um, especially I had a little son at that time. He's a big kid now. He's 12 years old. so for the first four years of his life, I was gone, right? Deployment, 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 just him on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast. Um, so we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. But when I hit shore duty in 2014, we connected over a show called Regular Show. And then it wasn't until I got out in 2016 where I'm flipping through the channels and I see the book of life. And my son is like, stop, 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 right? He, all he saw was the colors, right? So I'm like, okay, so we flip back, flip back. And it is the part uh, where I love you too much, Diego Luna, the guy I want to, uh, I want him to narrate my life. Most people want Morgan Freeman, you know, I want Diego (laughs) Luna to just narrate my life, right? But uh, that scene comes on where he's doing the song for Maria, and then I'm just mesmerized right off the bat. My son and I watched that movie from start to finish, and then we hit record, or not record, excuse me, rewind, and we watched it again from start to finish two times in a row. You got, you helped, you and J.G. Quintel helped bridge a gap that the Navy created, right? The, this, this gap between me and my son. So when I told you before we hit start, you were very important in mine and my son's life, man. I can't thank you enough for doing that. Movie was beautiful. So. Oh my God. Julian, you're going to make me cry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, you gotta, you gotta get uh, J.G. To, uh, to come talk to you. He's a super, super nice dude. Yeah. Uh, you know, I never see him do interviews, though, so it might be hard. Uh, but, you know, hearing stuff like that warms my heart. And obviously, like, you know, once you make a thing and it goes out into the world, you have no idea. You have no idea if people are going to connect or if people are going to have any sort of uh, uh, emotional connection to it. Uh, and for me, Book of Life has been one of those movies where, you know, looking back, it was everything I all my dreams, all my dreams happened with that movie. And then when I was done, I was exhausted emotionally, physically. And it just, it was like, a, you know, I'm a dad too. It was like my kid went out and, and they went out into the world. And I said, well, I hope, I hope we raced it right. And I hope, <laughs> I hope the world is kind to it. Uh, <laughs> and, and then all, you know, I hear stories like yours and I start hearing stories from all over the world. Uh, and I kind of assumed People in Mexico would have that connection. Mm-hmm. So it's been, it's been incredibly just inspiring to hear people from different parts of the world and different, different relationships sort of 
accept and, and, and have the movie connect them to, you know, their kids. Cause it's a movie about love, love of generations, love of fathers and sons, daughters and, and, and mothers. Like it really is a love letter to this idea that family, even though they're not together, we're still, we're still together. Yeah. Right. Even if we're not physically together, you say their names, you talk about them and they're with you. And I don't, I mean, I don't mean they have to be dead, but literally, you know, if I talk about my dad, my dad's alive, he, he's with me. The moment I talk about him, he's with me. So mm-hmm. it's this idea that we, we should, we should not, we should not, I, in my head, it, the word is dishonor, but mm-hmm. we should not dishonor those who are not here by not talking about them. Uh, and, and that's a very specific, unique relationship that I think Mexico and, and Mexicans have with, with death, right? Like I, I grew up with death all around me in a positive light. Skulls were everywhere. This idea that, hey, life is going to end. So we got to live. We got to live it up. And, and you don't know when you're going to die. So you should, you should really cherish the moments you are with your loved ones. And you should really cherish everything because it might go away at any second. And, you know, spoiler alert, we're all going to die anyways. <laughs> so make the best. And so, the, the, you know, the, the belief was that people uh, in Mexico have death and, and death, you know, to us is a beautiful thing. Death is in our ear whispering, mm-hmm. live, live, right? So it's a loving, it's a loving death. Uh, and so the movie was kind of like that. It was me coming to the U.S., me, uh, people would talk about their dead in a weird way here. And for me as a foreigner, I was always sort of stunned that people didn't like to talk about those who passed away. Yeah. It was too painful to, to talk about them. And so to me, I, I felt sad because I said, well, if you don't talk about them, how do you remember them? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like separating the pain from the, from the good memories. If you put it all together and you put it away, then they really are gone. Yeah. But the, but the moment you keep talking about the moment you remember, oh, my God, this is my you know, grandfather's favorite food. Oh, this was my, you know, my brother or sister who passed away. This is her favorite song or her favorite joke. We should play it for them. Like the moment you start speaking and talking and saying the things they love, the movies they love, the food they, they love, then you're, you're reliving those memories and then they're here. So that, that was kind of a, the idea with that movie a celebration of those who are not around, but also a celebration of the idea that remembering others is, is something we can all do. And especially for kids, right? The reality is kids deal with death before any parent thinks they're ready for it because of the math of life with grandparents, right? Grandparents, you know, we're all going to pass away. I experienced that my first interactions with death were my, my, my grandparents passing away and I had a friend who passed away uh, when I was a kid and it was, it was interesting because my parents say I didn't get, I didn't get sad. I got really angry because mm-hmm. uh, he was young and I, and I said, it's not fair. It's not fair. He died. And my mom sat me down. Uh, this is in Mexico city. You know, I must've been nine or, or eight years old. And she told me, Look, Jorge, uh, your friend, you know, he passed away, but we're talking about him right now. Mm-hmm. That means he's here. So I want you to 
never stop talking. You know, literally, what are we doing right now? I'm talking about my friend. So he's here. He's here with me because I'm talking about him. Rewatch the movies you love with him. But what was his favorite dish? You should eat that. What was his favorite joke? Don't stop telling that joke. What were the favorite cartoons that you guys watched? What were the things you did with him? You have to remember him. That's how you honor him. Yeah. You can get sad. You can get angry. But don't you dare stop talking about him. And that was it, man. I just, that's when I grabbed that concept and I grabbed that idea. And as I grew older, I wanted, I wanted to share it with everybody. Uh, eventually, I, you know, I met the love of my life, Sandra, and, and we, I told her, I want to get married on Day of the Dead because I want him to be my best man, right? That's the, day the, that's the day they get to visit us. So he gets to be my best man. And guess what? We get to invite all our families who are no longer with us to be there. And that night, man, we, you know, we partied it up and a lot of tequila was drank and he was there and all my family was there. So Book of Life comes from all those ideas. So when people go, is this personal to you? Hell yeah, it's personal to me. It's, it's, it's everything to me. So obviously I try to put all that in the movie, right? And it's my first movie and I never thought I mean, looking back, I was pretty naive, but I never thought I would get to make that movie, and let alone as my first movie, and then to have Guillermo del Toro as the producer. Like, I look back, I go back in time, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it all happened, and it all paid off, and, and people kept telling me, like, if you get this movie made, what are you going to do? You've been talking about this for years, like, this is your dream, then what? And it, it happened. After the movie was done, I was, I was, I was lost. Yeah. It was like, I, I got to experience the greatest thing in the universe. And then it was like, now what? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these are, these are good problems to have. I can only imagine, man. Now, uh, so this is the first podcast I've done probably in the last couple of weeks, uh, about three weeks ago, since we're talking about death. And I didn't want to bring this up, but I'd be remiss to not um, hearing you describe how the Mexican culture looks at the people that are no longer here is is what you, is beautiful. It's just short and sweet. It's, it's beautiful. Um, I can't remember what the exact line was, but as soon as you quit remembering or as soon as the last person that knew you is gone, your memory is gone. You're gone. You fade into existence, right? So yeah. about three weeks ago, uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law both get COVID and both get really sick. Mother-in-law, uh, you know, gets rid of COVID. Father-in-law does not. He's in the hospital. Uh, about a week ago, he goes on the ventilator. Monday, he passes away, right? <sighs> I'm sorry, man. Yeah, I, I didn't want to bring it up. But like I said, it, it's it you 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 put it so eloquently you put it so beautifully so this whole week has been uh just a fucking head trip man it's it's been it's been wild because of 62 you think of the man 62 kindest person i've ever met i didn't have a dad growing up um you know mine went to prison when i was real young so about the last 12 years 13 years is uh how long my wife and i've been together um he's been that father figure right he showed me how to fix stuff i don't i'm not a real man i don't know how to fix shit i'm not super macho you know what i mean i can grow a decent mustache i'm just not super macho jorge right so uh, <laughs> you know but uh you know so he showed me so much right and uh the one thing that i remember um 
for, for Christmas this past year, he built my son, him and my son were very, very close. Uh, he was the first grandbaby on both sides. So when I deployed, he came, uh, my wife and my son came home to Florida and uh, I was, I was gone for like eight, nine months or whatever it was. Um, so he stayed with my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. So he got to, to experience what a real grandpa was like, like what a real man was supposed to be like all these beautiful stories, all these crazy stories, all these fun. He was a, he was a joker. He would, he would pull pranks and shit, you know? And, uh, that was, that was the hardest part was, was having to tell my son, but, uh, for Christmas, I mean, he had built my son a cornhole set. I don't know if you ever played cornhole. No. All right. So, no. so cornhole picture two wooden boards with a circle in the middle and you have bean bags and you're standing by. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you got to throw it in there. Right. So my son and I love this game. So we had reached out and was like, hey, would you like to build Hayden something for Christmas? He's like, yeah, I'd love to build. He's like, what does he like? And, you know, Nate was my uh, father in law. He's a master woodworker. He was like, well, we really like cornhole, and so does so does Hayden. Maybe you can make something. And he went to the nines with this thing. He fucking sanded everything down. He built everything. He put lights so we could play. And uh, the last time, you know, he he, I got to see him, um, you know, kicking it and alive and everything like that um, was Christmas. Essentially, we played cornhole. And the the saddest part of this was is I won the first game. He won the second game. So we had a tiebreaker coming. And I'll never get that tiebreaker, but I will always remember just like how he'd light up a room when he came in right? how he smiled. And yeah. before I started this episode, I wanted to go back and rewatch Book of Life because I wasn't depressed enough for, hey, I wanted to be more depressed. Right. So I'm watching this <laughs> in, in the scene where, you know, Manolo is sitting there with his dad when he's a small boy and then he sees all of the ancestors behind him. And they're, they're the skeletons, they're the, the crystal skulls, the, the sugar yeah. skulls. It fucking got me, brother. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, oh, man, I wasn't ready for this one. So the only reason I tell you that story is because you and Gendy, Danny Antonucci and JG Quintel, you guys are on my Mount Rushmore, right, of animators, right? You guys, Gendy is the master of silence and suspense. Oh, yeah. Are the master of heart and making me cry, Jorge. That's what I'm getting at real quick, right? (laughs) So we we will talk about Book of Life uh, in just a minute. But something I thought was very, very special that you did, and I sent you an email about it, um, was bringing up PTSD in my end of Pichu. I, I was in Navy, so I would never saw war. The craziest thing I ever saw was fucking 200 feet away, a car bomb blew up in an abandoned, like, um, what does he call it? Like a parking lot in, uh, not Abu Dhabi. I was going to say Abu Dhabi, but uh, Dubai. That's the craziest thing I ever saw. Nobody ever shot at me and never had, you know, landmines, had friends died. Um, but that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Seeing that, that scene, it's been like six months now at this point. So I think we can talk about Pichu dies. Um, yeah. But uh, that scene where it's him and Chaba, they're, they're, they're having this apprehension of going into war, right? The battle scars, both mentally and physically, are weighing heavy on them. You don't see something like that in really anything because mental health is something that is very, very, I won't say it's taboo, but it's not talked about enough, right? It's not, right. It's not masculine, I guess, is what people get. You, you got to be strong. You got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You got to be tough. You, know, you got to be mentally tough. What was the mindset about bringing something like PTSD into an animated show and just highlighting it for so many people to see? Was there a story behind bringing that into? Yeah, 
Uh, absolutely. Um, so I come from a military family on the Mexican side. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Mexico, uh, you know, military in Mexico. It's not like the military here. It's very different. You know, they, they, they obviously it's complicated down there. Uh, and then on this side, I had friends who served and I had friends who came back and they would talk about their experiences and they would talk about, you know, their friends and things that happened to them. Uh, and I definitely wanted to address this idea that sometimes to me, the manliest, more super macho thing was to be hurt, yeah, but keep trying, mm-hmm. right? To keep getting up and going, I'm not okay, but I'm going to keep making the effort. Like to me, that was the most super macho thing in the world, more yeah. than more than defeating any monsters and, you know, doing any quest. To me, that was the most fucking manly thing I've ever seen. When people said, I'm scared, but I'm going to keep trying. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that was what that was about. And then this idea that, you know, and this is a big thing in Maya, this idea that people believe that they're broken or they're, fixed right a bit very binary it's one or the other mm-hmm. and one of the things that we, we really try to set up in maya is no everybody's broken and that's okay yeah right in a weird way that's what defines you not the thing that broke you but how you approach the thing after mm-hmm. right so true you know people say a true Character is revealed by how they act in the worst moment, right? When things are, are awful, when things are going really hard, when things are, are at their worst, how people react in those moments, that to me is the real heroes. So that's heroism, right? When you, can, when you can do that and demystifying this idea that heroes are perfect or that heroes are super beings that uh, don't have any fear. Mm-hmm. No, heroes are the ones who are terrified but go into the storm, or are terrified and and keep going. So that that's basically what where that came from. Uh, and then I'll you know there's a lot of special needs stuff in, in Maya. For me specifically, you know, I'm on the autism spectrum. My son is on the autism spectrum, and so one of the ideas with the wizard Rico was in a lot of media when someone has to deal with disability, they have to conquer the disability in order, in order to be complete. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that was always a, a, very, a very sad statement on society that if you were disabled, you needed to not be disabled in order to fit in. Uh, and so in most movies with a character stuttering, they fixed the stuttering and then the, the hero made it. So for us, it was no, not only is stuttering a part of Rico, it's actually the thing that allows him to do things different than everybody else. He's not better, he's just different. And that, the moment he comes to terms with that and he comes to terms with bad things happen in his life, but he's gonna keep going, that's when he became a hero. When he accepted that it wasn't his fault, that this is who he is, and he's going to make the best of it, that's when he became complete. So all those ideas 
you know, in a traditional kids cartoon, they don't ask you for any of that stuff. That's stuff that we we put in because at least for me, like it has to have layers. It can't, it can't just be funny and it can't just be action packed because, you know, no offense to cartoons that only do that, but that's easy. Yeah. I want, I want this delicious cake to have layers and I want heart to be the protein that's hidden under all that frosting so that we are saying something. We're saying something with these cartoons and we're saying something to, honestly, to kids because I, 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 in my mind, kids are still making up their idea of what the world is. They're still making up their morality. They're still making up sort of their vision of what humanity is and they're gonna be bombarded, right? They're gonna be bombarded in video games and media and all these things. And so it's on us. I take full responsibility as a director and as a creator. I wanna serve the kids the most delicious, healthy food that I can make for them. And I know I'm competing with, you know, McDonald's and, and ice cream and slushies. So man, I gotta make this stuff just as delicious and just as unique, but it's, but it can't just be fat calories. It's gotta have something more. And that stuff is really hard because they don't pay you to do that stuff. You gotta wanna do it. And it's funny, uh, well, it's not funny that you bring it up. It's uh, something that um, I've, I've learned a lot about uh, doing this podcast. The first time I ever heard anybody um, having autism in the, so I've known people that have had autism. I've known people that have Down syndrome. Um, one of the first, uh, one of the first things I ever volunteered time for when I was in the military, because you would get um, like, whenever you started going up in rank, they'd want to see, it's the same thing in high school, going to college, they want to see a diversified um, yeah. resume, right? So you do volunteer hours where you go and you do this and you do that. And the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to volunteer at the Special Olympics. That was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in my life. Oh, sure. Nobody was upset. Nobody was mad. Everybody, like I'd never gotten more hugs in my life. And I'm a big hugger, right? I hug everybody. I just love hugs, man. It makes you feel better. I'd never gotten more hugs and more high fives than I was at the Special Olympics, man. It was so fucking cool, man. Just everybody comes up, everybody's smiling, everybody's cheering each other on. Whether you're in first place or last place, everybody was cheering people on, right? So the only reason I bring up that story was when I had the, the great Billy West on, right? Fry. Oh, amazing. Chris Farnsworth, man. Zoid Bird, Doug, Brennan Stimpy, man. The, the, the Billy West, right? Yeah. I find out he has autism. Yep. He's telling me this. And I'm like, I stopped him halfway through. And I'm like, look, Billy, you're legendary. I don't mean to cut you off. I mean, you can, you can kill this zoom, zoom meeting for me cutting you off at this point. Right. But I, I just had to applaud him. I'm like, dude, there's so many people that, that have a, a, a disability, right. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, that they crumble under pressure, right. Or they just let that disability get the best of them. They don't, they don't fight through it. They don't, in the, in the face of adversity, they don't sit there and push through. Like we were just talking about, you want to have layers, right? You want to see what somebody does at the bleakest. What does that person do? Cause pressure does two things. It either busts pipes or it creates diamonds, right? I want to be a diamond. I don't want to be a busted pipe. Yeah. So Billy's telling me all this stuff of him working through it. And then through that episode, when that one went out, uh, 2020, um, I had so many people that were listening that, that either had down syndrome or had autism, or, you know, they were on some kind like the Asperger spec, like they were on some kind of spectrum and all of them reached out and they said, hearing Billy say this 
hearing Billy do this, hearing Billy do this, he's like, it gave me hope. He was like, I, I, I had been called all of these horrible names, all these derogatory names from such a young age. And I thought I was the one that had a fucking problem. And he was like, I realized all of those people had a problem. I was just me. He's like, I didn't, I didn't choose. It was the same thing about being gay. I didn't choose to be gay. I didn't choose to have Down syndrome. This is just who I am. And I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm reading all of these messages and I'm like, fuck, dude, you never know what somebody's going through. You never know how somebody's brain is working. You never know, right? And I've heard you bring it up because I try to go and I, I try to listen to a lot of the interviews that you guys do whenever, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Jorge. I'm not an expert on Billy West. I'm not an expert on all you guys. I'm just a fan, right? At the end of the day, but I don't want to ask you guys the same questions you're always asked, right? I love, don't get me wrong. I love the Guillermo del Toro, del Toro story, excuse me. I would love to hear it, but I've heard it so many times. I just, I, I want, I want to get something else from Jorge. You know, I want, I want him to tell a different story or, or see what, what happened here, happened there. Same thing with Billy West. Billy West has a, a couple stories that everybody likes to ask him, but just hearing that, the only reason I bring that up too is, is, is what would be some advice? Cause I remember, uh, I can't remember what podcast you were talking about it on, but I think you said a few years ago is when you found out you were, you were on the spectrum Knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time to Jorge and say, hey, man, you're on the autism spectrum. This is some stuff that, you know, might might help you along the way. I've got a lot of fans that are on the spectrum. What advice would you give them is essentially what I'm getting at, Jorge. What's some advice you could give the fans? All right. So let me let me go back to the beginning. So I I was diagnosed. I'm 47 now. I was diagnosed when I was 40. I had no idea. Uh, My. Parents had no idea. Uh, I have a sister who's a little bit older than me. And especially in Mexico, they just thought I was a regular weird kid, right? There's plenty of weird kids. Uh, I I didn't talk for a while. I got held back in school two years. Uh, I was, you know, teachers told my parents. Some teachers said, uh, yeah, your kid's kind of, you know, this is is unwoke, but your kid's kind of dumb. Yeah. And when you, as a kid, when you hear that, you're like, yeah, I guess I am dumb. Yeah. All the adults are saying that, you, you believe it. Uh, and I had a hard time uh, focusing or being interested in anything that wasn't things that I was into. Mm-hmm. So if I wasn't into it, I had zero interest. I was obsessed with you know, animation and cartoons and movies and, and, and I got really into art. And then as I kept growing, I would do the minimum, literally the minimum amount of work just to get by. Mm-hmm. I was that kid. I would go, go home, play video games and watch movies until I had to go to sleep and then try to do my homework on the drive to work. <laughs> like I was that kid. And then I, again, I didn't know I was on the spectrum. If, the, if my teachers were good and they talked about the stuff that was going to be in the test, when the test came around, if they said it, I remembered it. Mm-hmm. But if they didn't say any of that stuff, then I, I, I couldn't do it. Uh, and I did a lot of like cramming information and I would just hold it in. So I think all the, my autism over the years I've learned has been, I can retain a lot of information. I can process a lot of information. I can I can basically uh, read people emotionally really well. 
and I can, this is the, this is the one that I consider a superpower. It took me a, a long time to, to come to terms with it, but I can emotionally disconnect when I need to. Yeah. And as an artist, that's been incredibly helpful. Oh, I can imagine. Right. So literally I can read the most hateful, racist, horrible message and go, huh. Like it, it, old me with the blood would boil. And I just taught myself, you know, people say grow a thick skin. I think you develop armor. I don't think you grow a thick skin. Uh, and and it came to the point where I, I was able to really control my emotions and I was really able to sort of focus. That was the other big point. I could just focus on things longer than other people. And I could really sort of see things through. So I started learning to draw in my head and I started to write in my head. And so by the time I got down to drawing and the time to, to writing, it was all figured out inside. So I go, you know, 17 years old, I get into the school called CalArts, which is where all the animation people went. And I went from being a C minus student to an A plus plus student. Because mm-hmm. I basically found my, my tribe. And, you know, obviously this is not, this is not the same for all, everybody on the spectrum. Every single person on the spectrum is completely different. Yeah. Uh, my, my things that hold me back uh, have honestly been really helpful. I don't think, I don't think I could do the stuff I do uh, without being on the spectrum. And sometimes, you know, one of my insecurities is, fuck, was that my idea? Or was that the, or was that the autism? <laughs> so that, that, that is something that obviously I had no idea. So eventually I, we have a kid, he, he gets diagnosed. Uh, Luca gets diagnosed when he's two and a half years old. And my parents go, autism? No, he doesn't have autism. You were exactly like him. Mm-hmm. And you don't have autism. So that was the first time where I went, wait a second, what do you mean I was just like him? <laughs> what? And obviously they had no point of reference, right? To him, it was like, well, that's just how you were. So the as an adult, the way you get tested is uh, they ask you a ton of questions. You do all these forms. You, you know, you have to do it with a professional. And they ask your significant other. You know, they ask my wife a ton of questions. They ask my my parents a ton of questions about how I was raised. They, you know, and basically the, the testing came back and they were like, yeah, you have a, a thing called uh, 2E called twice exceptional. Uh, and you're really good at certain things, or you're obviously not very good at other things. Uh, but you have figured out how to uh, basically how to work with this thing, and, and you know, obviously, it's worked to your advantage. Mm-hmm. And the more they broke it down, you know, I've been in the industry for animation industry for twenty, what is it now, twenty two years. I would say honestly, I'm going to say forty percent of the people in animation are on the spectrum. They don't know. Um, you know, again, I, I don't want to out them and I don't want to mention their names, but a lot of your favorite feature film directors are on the spectrum. And some, I think, just like me, uh, are told do not be public about this because yes. it's another reason you're giving you're giving the world another reason to not hire you. But you know when Eli Musk comes out and says he's Asbergian, like, 
that's what that's what it takes, right? Like a lot of big name people coming out and saying they're on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think it's a huge, huge deal. Uh, I think the way people on the spectrum think sometimes is different. And that's what a lot of times drives technology and drives the arts and drives <laughs> science. And so this, this negative is also a huge positive. Yeah. Right? So, but it's a double, double-edged sword, right? Because it can also be a bad thing. And it can definitely be an excuse to not do a lot of stuff. And that's one of the things that sort of I had to come to terms with where I said, all right, so do I use, do I use this, this, this gift dash curse I was born with? Again, I'm not going to let it define me. I'm going to define it by what I do with it. And I'm going to take advantage of all the things I'm really good at. And all the things, you know, all those fair and love and war and animation. So I'm going <laughs> to use it to my, to my advantage. And so, you know, my son is a little less functional uh, than me. I remember sitting down with my dad and, 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 and sort of, you know, having those moments with, 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 uh, with him. Uh, when, when my wife first got pregnant, uh, I've been, as an artist, I've been pretty risky. And I've taken a lot of big risks. And I'm someone who, if things aren't working out, I leave immediately. I tell the studio, I'm going to save you a ton of money and a ton of headaches. I'm out. Uh, And I've turned down a lot of stuff. And I've said no to a lot of stuff that a lot of people probably wouldn't have done. But I just, I have a certain belief system about certain things. And it's worked for me. So my wife gets pregnant. Uh, my, at that time, our show had been canceled. El Tigre had been canceled. Uh, I had just quit uh, the Book of Life at DreamWorks uh, because they didn't want to do the, the version that ended up going on the screen. And I remember sitting down with my father and having, having that one of those moments where he goes, all right, you're going to be a dad. Now what? And I was like, well, father, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take less risks. I'm going to, you know, there's a baby coming and he's going to depend on me. And it's time for me to be a little more conservative and it's time for me to be a good dad. And it's time for me to do uh, what is best for my family. Right? Like I've seen that in a million movies. I've read that in a million books. Like that is what the hero, what the hero father is supposed to say. Right? At least in my head, that's what that was. (laughs) And my dad looks at me and he goes, huh, did I raise a coward? Mm. And again, it was, it was like this sword. It cut me. <laughs> it just cut like whooshing. And I was speechless. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean, dad? And he goes, Jorge, every success you've ever had was because you took risks and because you were brave. What I'm hearing from you is I'm no longer going to do that because of my baby. What I'm hearing from you is now you have an excuse to not take risks. Now you have an excuse that potentially could make your life more difficult. And guess who you're going to blame? 
You're going to blame your family. You're going to subconsciously blame that kid. What are you doing? You have a kid now. You're supposed to take even more risks because <laughs> there's more at stake. Mm -hmm. What kind of example are you going to be to him? Oh, my dad gave up his dreams for me. What kid wants to hear that? Yeah. So I was like, fuck, you know, my mustache grew, chest hair, like, you know, the shape of Mexico, like my <laughs> back hair turned into the eagle from the flag. Years go by, right? Two and a half years go by and my son gets diagnosed on the spectrum. I have same, same sit down with my dad and he's like, all right, all right. Your son is on the spectrum. What are you going to do? I was like, well, dad, I'm going to take even more risks. And he goes, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> You're again, like an awesome guy, man. Oh, he's, he's a, he was a tough, tough dad in a good way, but also in a way where he figured out early. And I don't know whether to believe him because he's really good at storytelling. But he says that he figured out early that I thrived when told I couldn't do something. Yeah. And so he knew, he was like, well, you want to go to that school? You're probably not going to get in. <laughs> and that was the like little fire he would like. And, you know, after, after El Tigre came out, and, you know, it, it did pretty well. It won seven Emmys and all this stuff. He was like, I'm really proud of you for that show, but you know, it'd be great if you made a movie. Yeah. And again, he planted that little seed. And after Book of Life, he was like, I'm running out of stuff to give you. you <laughs> producer credit on your movies? Uh, yeah, he gets producer credit on my life. Uh, <laughs> but definitely the, the this idea that and, you know, obviously it's different for everybody, but this idea that you had to separate your family and your work, depending on your job is obviously the normal thing to do. But what I found with me and my wife and a lot of our friends was, what if your family is your work? What if you, you in, incorporate all of it and you're all together in this thing? And what if, your family becomes the inspiration of your work and you're constantly feeding this, this sort of beautiful garden with experiences and memories and, and honoring you know, previous generations. And, but at the same time, you're, you're growing new stories and you're growing new family members and you're growing all of it. And, it. and I was told, don't do that. Don't work with your wife, right? Everybody told me, you can't work with your wife. And I was like, what, why? They're like, because it doesn't work out. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, people who work with their wives, they end up getting divorced. I'm like, yeah, but isn't, isn't marriage 50% divorced anyways? Like, <laughs> and if you genuinely love somebody, don't you want to hang out with them? Yeah. <laughs> right? And don't you want to be there in the good times and be there in the bad times? And don't you want to, you know, if life is a battle, don't you want your your beloved to be with you on the battlefield instead of of far away and 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 maybe doesn't 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 appreciate 
or doesn't understand or doesn't relate to what you're going through. And then you don't relate to what they're going through. So for me, it was everybody telling me, don't do it. It really worked for me. So every time people tell me, don't do something, I'm the guy who goes, why? Yeah. Right. And especially in Hollywood, a lot of studios go, we do it like this. Why? Because it's always been done that way. Oh, I hate that. That's the worst, right? So then you, in the moment you start questioning and the moment you start realizing, wait, but if it costs the same and it takes the same amount of time, can we do it differently? And that's when the best studios go, yeah. If you can figure out a better way that gives us a better result, but it doesn't cost more and it doesn't take us long, sure. Yeah. And by the way, there's studios who are like, no. What you're proposing is risky because we know that other way works. And so if you try something else and it works, we're back to where we started. So don't take any chances. <laughs> I come from the school of, if you know it already works, now you can experiment because if it fails, you have somewhere to fall back on. Yeah. So it's just a, just a different way of seeing things. You know what you need to do whenever you go to these studios now and they tell you you can't go? You need to take your dad in there with you, shut the door, leave him in there, and like, Pop, talk to him. Give him some well, gas. <laughs> and by the way, like, I, that's why I, I struggled a little bit going to places where they go, we make this, here's how we make it, and you're a Lego, literally a Lego piece that will click into the system. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried working in that system and I'm just not that person. I'm not that guy. And it took me a while to sort of come to terms with, I, I, you know, I thrive doing my own stuff. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, who's you know, my hero, my, my mentor. I love him. Guillermo is the greatest human being on the planet. After um, Book of Life came out, I was told by the studio, Real Effects, you can pitch us whatever you want. We're, we're, you know, we're so happy with how Book of Life turned out. Uh, dream, dream projects. What do you want to do? And I said, oh, I have, I have, you know, I have a Western because I love Westerns. It's my favorite film genre. I love Kung Fu movies and I love sci-fi. And to me, Star Wars, just like everybody else, I grew up loving Star Wars. Star Wars is a samurai Western set in space. Right? That's basically Star Wars. I want to do a Kung Fu space Western. I want to do my take on it. It'll be about the border. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, in my head, I was like, yeah, this is a no brainer. Uh, Real effects gets behind it. We start developing it. Uh, we start pitching it to different studios. We go to a studio that I can't say who it is because I have a lot of friends there. Uh, What's it the rhyme studio- <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, they have made the most amazing animated movies recently. When I pitched my thing, they were not making the most amazing things <laughs> at the time. So if anybody loves animation, they can figure out what studio it is. So this studio uh, goes, we love this idea, but, you know, Kung Fu Space Western is very high concept. We want to test this idea. We want to test it in you know, middle America, and we want to test it in China. Mm-hmm. Right? So they take, they take my script. They take all this development already done, because this thing is ready to go. Right? It's figured out. They test it in the U.S. You know, we wait six months. We get all the tests back. They bring us in. And they're like, huh, middle America hates 
Kung Fu. <laughs> and then they go, huh, China hates Westerns. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so your Kung Fu space Western, we're going to need you to take out the Kung Fu and the Western. <laughs> So I was like, wait a second, my Comfort Space Western is now just a sci-fi movie? And they're like, ah, oh, sci-fi feature animation doesn't do very well. Can you take that out too? And I was like, all right, <laughs> clearly it's not gonna work. So, uh, and, and, you know, getting, getting a little into politics, it dealt with the border, it dealt with the US and Mexico, you know, all, all the, all, I'm, I grew up in the border, so it's a big, it's a big, theme for me this idea that two sides yeah. uh can fall in love and two sides can, can can exist in a way that's really healthy uh so you know history is history uh president trump wins the election and uh the border not exactly a topic anybody wants to discuss at that time yeah. uh even hollywood was like mm, we shouldn't really <laughs> be doing anything about this uh so Guillermo del Toro, being Guillermo del Toro, who's super, super, super helpful in my worst moments, goes, you know, Gordo, because, you know, Gordo is, is, is an endearing term for a fat guy. Yeah. He goes, you know, Gordo, what you need to do is uh, you need, this is, this is me doing Guillermo, right? Uh, you need to do something for, uh, you need to play in a studio sandbox. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. When I was, you know, Alfonso Cuaron did one of the Harry Potters. I did Blade 2, like you need to do a studio movie, a sequel, get in there, get in, get into the studios, write it out until the politics of the world change and then you can make your crazy uh, Kung Fu Space Western. So I, uh, you know, the universe heard them. I start getting all these job offers uh, and two of my, you know, one of my favorite animated movies is is the, the Lego movie. And I also love Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. So I love those guys, Chris and Phil. They made a show called Clone High that's freaking amazing. One of my favorite shows. Uh, and so I got to meet those guys during the, the era when Book of Life was going to all the award shows. You base, all the animation people basically got sat together. And so I became friends uh, with Chris and Phil and they called me up to work on a, a Lego movie uh and i i i went in there and i wanted to learn from them and i wanted to be a team player and i wanted to work in a in a studio and it was one of those moments where i slowly started to realize i don't think i'm that guy i don't think i work in a system uh like i'm so used to coming up with an idea writing it and directing it here they just want me to do this. They don't want me to design it. They don't want me to write it. They don't want me to come up with it. Like, I just had a hard time sort of putting myself in that place. And then at some point, it was, it was one of those moments where you go, wait a second. They're not wrong. They make this type of stuff and they've made this type of stuff before and they made this type of stuff and it's made them a lot of money. I'm wrong. I'm wrong for coming in here and thinking that I can do this the way I do things. Yeah. And the easy thing would be to blame them, but I don't think it's their fault. Mm -hmm. I did the job, right? Like I make, I make tacos and they make, you know, 
they make cheeseburgers. And I keep saying, like, what if we make the cheeseburger with a tortilla? And they go, no, we make cheeseburgers, dude. Uh, so I'm wrong for trying to change their menu. So I quit. I quit on the spot. And they were super nice and super kind. Everybody was really cool about it. And I think everybody kind of got why. And then Netflix at that moment, again, thanks to social media and Twitter and all this stuff, um, I have a friend, Shannon Tyndall, who posted this picture, this big dinner with all these directors. We get called in, uh, all, a bunch of show creators and directors, a lot of them who, who when we went there, uh, we were basically told, we're going to do Netflix animation. We're going to create a new studio. We're going to make movies. We're going to make TV shows. We're going to make a ton of stuff. And I still remember there's a lot of people in that meeting who said, bullshit. That sounds too good to be true. I'm not leaving my cushy studio job to come to a new place. And other people were like, streaming? That's a fad. Uh, right? Obviously, you know, I don't want to be an ageist, but definitely the older guard not sold on streaming uh, at that party. So I remember I, I was all in. I mean, I think I was like subscriber number 17 when Netflix came out for the first time. Uh, so I've been a Netflix guy from the beginning. So I was like, oh my God, I, 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 I've drank the Kool-Aid. I love this stuff. I think it's the future. Blah, blah, blah. They asked me about Maya. They basically said, pitches your dream project that you don't think you can get made anywhere. In my head, I originally conceived Maya as my Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to do three movies. And it's going to be this epic, epic thing. And one of the biggest issues I had on Book of Life was in the original Book of Life, the main character died. Manola died to save his town. And then he was reunited with Maria when she passed away as an old lady. Kind of like Titanic, right? Like when Rose is reunited with Jack. Studio said, we love this ending. We love it. But you can't do that. And I was like, why? They're like, you just can't. And I brought up Titanic. I'm like, what Titanic? Like 20th Century Fox, you guys made Titanic. And they're like, this is the answer I got. Yeah, but there's no Titanic too. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah. The reason you can't kill the main character in an animated movie is because we want to make sequels if it's a hit. You can't kill Scrat in Ice Age in a movie. You can't kill, you know, you can't kill Moana. You can't kill Mulan. So it really stayed with me like, well, fuck. So that means none of us can ever make an animated movie where the main character sacrifices themselves and stays dead because there's a lot of fake sacrifices. In, in it's, it's basically a trope now. So when I pitched Maya, I said, I want to do three, this, this you know, four and a half hour epic. It's three movies. You know, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Maya. And it's about a warrior princess who dies saving the world. And anytime I would bring that up in a studio, people would go, yeah, that's, that sounds amazing, but we can't make that. Can it be one movie? And can she not die? Like, no. I, can you do Lord of the Rings in one movie? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, people tried, but <laughs> not a good version of the movie. And then I said, and then what if in Lord of the Rings, what if the, what if the ring was a person? 
And what if the ring chose to throw himself into the, into the fire to save the world? That's basically what I'm trying to do. So every other place that I brought this up to, I would get these like, oh my God, that sounds so great, but we can never do it. Like in the same sentence, like, I love this. No. <laughs> Netflix at the party, when I said that stuff, they were like, so she dies? I'm like, yeah, she dies. And if she doesn't die, then I don't want to make it. And they were super cool. And they were like, all right, let's make it. And I think that was a moment where Netflix was starting out the animation division. They were taking crazy swings. They were, you know, to their credit, they went for it. And they, a lot of passion projects that would have never gotten made anywhere else got made. And I think I was at the right place at the right time. But if I hadn't quit, <laughs> if I hadn't quit Warner Brothers, no Maya, and I wouldn't be at Netflix. And so when I look back, because you know, my, my dad loves to be an anthropologist of my career, and we go back and he goes, all right, so if El Tigre had not been canceled, you wouldn't have made Book of Life. If Book of Life would have done really, you know, a billion dollars, you would be making Book of Life five right now. Manolo in Acapulco, uh, you know, Manolo in Cancun, Book of Life. <laughs> All these things have allowed you to jump to other things. And when I told Guillermo about Maya and how I quit at Warner's, he was so funny. He goes, Sigordo, I told you, you can only work on your own stuff. <laughs> I was like, what happened to all that? He's like, it was Saturday. a test. It was a test. <laughs> you passed. That's fantastic, man. Uh, one thing that I absolutely love. Not only do you bring some of the cast members from Book of Life over into Maya. Uh, so I had to break down. Uh, I've been trying to find an actual, I don't like digital copy. Like when it comes to digital movies, I'm all about it. When it comes yeah. to digital books, if you can't see back there, I would show you down here where all my comics are, but this place is a fucking mess. I'm going back and reorganizing all my comics and recataloging them. It's, it, it's, it's a lot, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one thing I was trying to look for, and like I said, I had to break down and buy it digitally, um, was the art of the book of life because out of, and I, and I just bought the uh, Maya and the 312 not too long ago. So I'm skimming through them and I'm just, I'm amazed at your style. I mean, I'm wearing your fucking shirt, man. I, 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 I love, I love this. I don't know if I have it up here. I used to. Um, the Day of the Dead. I know we talked about it earlier, but it's it's. I'm, I'm a fucking white vanilla guy, man. I mean, I, I'm Irish and, and I'm American and, and fucking British and all this other crazy shit. German, I think too. Um, hey, the, the the Irish are the Mexicans of Europe. I've always said it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it, man. Because I there's there's the only reason I bring it up is because there's two foods. Uh, I'm a I'm a chef by trade. Um, oh, cool. I do this, yeah, I do this. I do this for my uh, my free time. This is something I want to transition to uh, once my body has had enough, and it's had enough of the kitchen, uh, at least professionally. It's had enough of the kitchen. Um, but there's two cuisines that that I fucking throw down on, and I will go up against anybody's abuelita, and I'll go up against anybody's granny man, right? So Mexican yeah. food, yeah, Mexican food and soul food, brother, are my two my two my go tos. Those those are the ones that I put the most heart and soul into. Those are the ones I have the most respect for, and those. Those are the ones that I just will not eat bullshit. Like if I see some, if I, 
please don't sue me KFC. If I see some KFC on plate, I get very upset. If I see some fucking Taco Bell on a, on a plate, yeah. I get really upset. Cause it's like I said, it's just those two cuisines that I absolutely love. Um, and, and, and Mexican, Mexican food uh, in particular, right? What's your go-to Mexican food before I go on my little trope here about Mexican food? So I'm a, I'm a tacos guy. Yeah. And I'm of the belief that the food itself is 50%. You know how in movies people go, oh, the sound is 50% of it, and the sound and the music. I'm of the belief that food, 50% of it is the food, but 50% of it is the experience. Yes. Right. So like my favorite tacos I've ever had were the tacos I had the night I kissed Sandra for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I went with my friend to have tacos and I, and the memory, like the taste of the tacos, I can remember till I die. Yeah. Or the, the night my dad and I went to have, we had the heartfelt talk or the, you know, the big moment in my life, there's been tacos. Mm-hmm. and they're street tacos they're in, in a standing place you might get sick type of tacos so to <laughs> me the, the experience is such a big part of it so if i go to a fancy restaurant or i go to a, a special place who, who i'm with and why i'm there is 50 percent of it for me because of the emotion because i think food food connects you to moments and yes. memories so that's a big part of it for me. But yeah, tacos, I would say, you know, tacos al pastor, tacos, uh, tacos uh, in Tijuana right now. Fuck, oh, man, there's some amazing stuff. They're, they're using a lot of cheese, a lot of American cheese. Uh, and there's some, like, that's like the cheese is on the grill. And so the cheese becomes yeah. a tortilla. And then they put the, you know, the al pastor or adobada. And then guacamole with the watery kind. Oh, and lately I, I've been into... Uh, Octopus tacos. Octopus oh. tacoada. Oh. So, so good. Anyways, tacos are my thing. And in my in my moments of joy, I've had tacos. And fuck, in my moments of sadness, I've had tacos. You like they're me. they're that friend who's always there. Who's yeah. always, when you need them, they're there. <laughs> they they truly are, man. My my go-to whenever I go to a spot. Uh, I, I so <clears throat> Being, being a chef there it's it's very weird uh because when you go to a place it, it like you said civilizations were built on bread right we would would break bread and then that's how i that's how you get to know somebody that's how you get to know somebody's culture that's how you get to know somebody's family oh, yeah. by sitting there you learn more about sharing a plate with somebody than you will ever learn in any kind of social setting right you go to a bar i mean i'm pretty sure you'll learn some shit but but it's something special about sharing a plate with somebody right you oh, learn yeah. somebody's idiosyncrasies you learn somebody's likes and dislikes you like what you know what they like on a plate and what they don't like on a plate and all of that stuff kind of it seasons it layers like that cake you were talking about earlier it layers that person that you're trying to get to know and and one thing that i absolutely love but it's weird to some people whenever i go out to a restaurant it looks like seven people are ordering Right. Because I'm ordering this, I'm ordering that, I'm ordering this, I'm ordering that. Cause I want to try a little bit of everything. Every every place has their dish that when they when it goes out, it's gonna be a hit. Right. But for me, I want those. I love octopus tacos. Uh, but enchiladas rancheras, when I see that, and it's just a oh, yeah. enchilada with roasted pork, right? And sometimes depending on the place and depending on the season, like you'll have uh, maybe some squash. There's always onion, there's always pepper. Uh, oh yeah. You know, it just depends on what it is. Like I've had it with mushrooms, I've had it with no pork, and I've had it uh, 
like I've had some really weird vegan, not vegan, <laughs> but vegetarian type of things. It yeah, was, yeah. Um, you know, I was out in San Diego there. They do a little, little different. Right. So, um, but you know, I, that's, that's like my go-to, but my tamales brother, man, I will put those up against anybody. I'm a huge. And, and you know, tamales are like super hard to make. So the fact that you, you mastered it, that's, that's hardcore, man. Well, it, it's, it's like, I can't do many things very well. I can do food really well. And tamales, like my first professional job in the, in the restaurant industry, I worked at a place called Reyes Mezcaleria in Orlando. And uh, they, they um, I believe at the time it was the Oaxaca region is what they would pull from. Um, and that's what we would do dishes inspired from the Oaxaca region. And wow. uh, the, the chef that's there now, Wendy Lopez, dude, her pozole is so fucking, like anytime, she only has it on a couple times a year, a couple times throughout the year. Every time it's on, I don't give a shit if it's the middle of summer, we could be going. I mean, it's, it's damn near 90 degrees every day here in Florida um, now, but if it was on the menu, I'm going to get a pozole. Man, so good. I don't even know why we're talking about food other than Mexican food is, is phenomenal, but um, getting back, cause I know we're running out of time here, getting back to the book of life. So I, I apologize for going off on that little tangent, but whenever I get right. to talk food with people, I, I love talking food. Um, when I told you earlier, man, I absolutely needed Diego Luna to to narrate my life from here on in. I, I wake up, I want him to go through my entire life and just tell everybody what I'm doing. And he's got such an amazing voice, man. How is how do you guys connect, man? Is it is it something you knew or somebody you knew through through the through the pipeline, or how'd that come to be? So Diego Luna, uh, I basically wrote the role for him. Uh, I love Ituma Tambien, one of the movies that he had done. And I was just a, a big fan of his, of this intangible thing that I thought his voice had. Because mm -hmm. with, with animation, we can't help it when we watch a movie, we're hearing the voice by itself. And Diego had such a unique way of talking and such a, such an earnest, honest voice that I really loved. So I, I you know, Manolo is not a is not a traditional hero. It's not a hero that is quippy or or you know bow 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 type of guy. He's he was super earnest, so it had to be a very special voice. Uh, and then Guillermo del Toro was like, "Are you sure?" I'm like, "Yeah, I think I think Diego Luna." And then he, I remember Guillermo like looking. We would put the artwork and we would grab voices from. Uh, you know, he had done Dirty Dancing, Havana, Dan Havana Nights, and you would hear that voice and you would see Manolo's art and people would go, oh yeah, that's him. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, you know, the agents, the, the way these things work, especially in a, in a movie like that, you basically pitch to the actor. They, they call the actor in, this is a Fox, and the small theater, and you pitch him the whole movie. And you go, here's the movie, here's your character, here's all the stuff you're gonna do. And when you know when Manolo was like, you're gonna sing, you're gonna do all this stuff. And Diego Luna came in like kind of shocked, like, you want me to sing? I'm like, yeah. It's like I've never sang before. Get the fuck out. Are you serious? Yeah. And you I couldn't tell like, through the movie. Uh, and by the way, you know, Gustavo Santolaya, the guy who did the music genius genius uh but he, and i got to you know i got to watch diego record all those songs and it, they would take maybe four hours per song and it was an, incre an incredible experience to watch someone who's not a professional singer sing it was kind of nuts 
That's insane. So we really hit it off. And I'm, I'm a, I'm, you know, when I'm directing, I, I, a lot of times I, I've, I've written and I work with uh, Doug Langdale, the guy who was my head writer on, on El Tigre, was my co-writer on Book of Life. So I, I basically see the movie in the script. And by the time I'm recording the actors, I kind of know the character. And so they can ask me any questions about any moment and I can basically tell them exactly what's happening. And with Diego, the thing that was interesting was he would go, all right, so you want this. And he would do it. And then he would go like a chef, you know, going back to food. Let me, I gave you the steak. Let me give you some chicken and let me give you some shrimp and let me give you some, you know, salmon. Now you have options. You got a mixed up there, bro. Yeah. And so it was, it was very, very, and he had never done animation. So he was coming at it from a very different place. And we were shooting him uh, for reference, making sure we got all of it. And then he and Zoe Zaldana had been in a Spielberg movie called The Terminal. Mm -hmm. And and they don't talk in that movie, right? They basically fall, the chemistry they have is so strong in that movie. Of course, Spielberg Spielberg knew. Uh, so knowing that Diego was one voice, I've always been a Zoe fan. So I was like, oh, I'm a Maria Zoe. So again, basically wrote it for her. Same exact thing. She comes in, we're pitching her the movie. Uh, and she goes, I really want to do this. And I love it. But I'm going to be in this really weird new movie for Marvel. And I was like, what movie? She's like, it's called Guardians of the Galaxy? <laughs> and I had no idea what that was. Like, I'm a, you know, I'm a nerdy guy. I had no idea what Guardians was. And I don't think anybody knew what, what Guardians know. was. Uh, and she goes, yeah, there's like a raccoon and a tree in it. And I was like, what? So Zoe ends up saying yes. And, and she was brilliant and amazing. But that's basically how all those voice actors happen. You basically have to pitch them the movie. You have to you have to convince them, uh, and then they're in. After we did the Book of Life, you know, it basically became like, well, who are all the actors I love? Oh, fuck, I love Ron Perlman. Um, you know, and they tell you, don't put their names on the script. <laughs> and I put all their names on the script. I'm like, Danny Trejo is going to be my grandfather, and you know, Cheech Marin is going to be this guy. Like, I basically start putting everybody in. Gabriel Iglesias, who I'm a big fan of, all these guys. And when they all start saying yes, you you kind of go a little nuts because you're like, fuck, I love you know, I love Ice Cube. I'm a big hip hop guy. Oh, man, fucking the Camel Maker will be Ice Cube, and everybody's like, literally, everybody goes, there is no way in hell. Ice Cube is going to do a Mexican animated movie. And I'm like, well, just get me in the room with him and let me pitch it to him. And, and maybe he'll say, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? He says, no, he doesn't come to the audition. Dude, Cube was amazing. Amazing. What was that pitch like? It was, I had to show him, you know, the candle maker basically tell him he's basically God. I was like, And he wore sunglasses the whole pitch, and he goes, hold on. I play God? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I'm in. (laughs) He goes, goes, uh, that's some Morgan Freeman shit. (laughs) 
You said you were a big hip hop guy, right? Yeah, huge hip hop man. No Vaseline is the hardest diss track. Oh my, my kid, god! There was a couple years ago, right? So I I, I grew up. I'm 32. I'll be 30, yeah, 32. So I'll be 33 in August. Um, when I grew up, I, I grew up to like a mix of R&B, a mix of hip hop. You know, when I really started listening, the first <clears throat> goddamn the first rap song I ever heard was Hail Mary from Tupac Shakur. That was the first wow. one, right? So the bar is already set ridiculously high, right? So I, I love the grunge era. I love Nirvana, the Foo Fighters when they came out, you know, Sublime. I loved hip hop. I, I loved a whole bunch of, like now, like if you look at my Spotify playlist, it is ridiculous. Like you go from bachata, you go from country, you go from this, you go from all the hip hop. It's, 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 it's so vast, right? It's like food all over the place. Yeah. My kid asked me, he's like, dad, uh, and he's, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have played him this song because I think he's like third grade, but to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, I heard Hail Mary about second grade, first grade, somewhere around there, you know, so it was, it was time, right? Times were yeah. different back then. I probably shouldn't have played this song. Good thing my wife wasn't there. Um, but he's like, dad, some of the kids at school, they were talking about Ice Cube because they had watched uh, Are We There Yet or some, something like that. It was one of Ice Cube's uh, family Yeah, movies. the family movie. Yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah, I know who Ice Cube is. And he was like, well, they said he was a rapper. Is he a rapper? I just thought he was an actor. Like, no, no, no. This this dude, straight fire, bro, as the kids say. And he was like, well, can you play a song? And I'm like, can I play you a song? So I'm scrolling through because I bought the death certificate album. I'm scrolling through. I'm looking. There's no other way we're going to do this to kick off your first Ice Cube song and go straight. No Vaseline. And his first wow. 45 seconds is just him, you know, building up. Here's what they yep. say about you. Here's what they say about you. And fuck all y'all. <laughs> and then I was, <laughs> I was like, oh, I really shouldn't play this. And it just keeps going and going and going. He was like, dad, why do you say that? So I'm hitting pause. Right. I feel like I'm a rap historian. I'm hitting pause. In this moment, <laughs> well, like, well, this is what he means when he says this. Yeah. And he's like, well, who's Easy E? And I'm like, oh shit, this is Easy E. So I play an Easy E song. He's like, well, who's Dr. Dre? So I'm playing a Dr. Dre song. He's like, why is Dr. Dre calling off Snoop Dogg? I thought they were friends. I was like, well, this is what happened. So what what should have been like a five or six minute song turned into like a two or three hour. This is why the East Coast hated the West Coast, and this is why yeah. Tupac weren't fans of each other. And so it was it was crazy getting to, getting to see his little mind just go right so we get back we get back from you know the little drive and shit like that and my wife goes uh what'd you guys do and she's like dad let's listen to ice cube I'm like fuck <laughs> she was like ice cube huh and i was like yeah you know the guy from uh are we there yet and she was like you mean the guy from nwa and i'm like oh shit historical context this was a history lesson <laughs> I mean, you know, those NWA albums are super political. They talk about yes. a lot of stuff. And, you know, people keep thinking the 90s was all, you know, bitches and hoes. No, there's a lot of a lot of message rap that had a lot of positive things. And yeah, you know, Q, Q, when we were recording him, he was doing the NWA uh, biopic. Yeah. And he was like, my son, wait till you see my son and I was like, what? Identical. He's identical. Sounds like him. Looks yeah. like him. it was uncanny. It was it was incredible. But anyway, yeah. So, you know, on Maya, I was like, well, I, I, I'm a big Fuji's fan. I'm going to get White Clef. And then I love Queen Latifah. Uh, Set It Off is one of my favorite movies. 
fuck it, I'm gonna ask Queen Ladivia. <laughs> and like, yeah, people are like, are you sure you, you think you can get these people? And they both said yes. So, you know, I have my list of all the 90s rappers I wanna work with, and I'm, I'm just crossing them out as I go. Who's at the top of your list right now that you haven't worked with? Oh, I can't say, I can't say, but let's just say I'm a big Wu-Tang fan. So I'm, uh, I'm going for the Wu-Tang. Oh man, I can't wait. Uh, you know, as we, as we start to wind down, um, I, I've had so much fun. Like I said, doing this podcast, uh, with you being a hip hop guy, you might know, do you know who Joyner Lucas is? No. What's that? Dude, I, I'm going to, I'll send you this video, or if you got some time, check it out when we get off the call. I, okay. Most people don't watch music videos anymore. This is probably the best music video I've seen in the last 15, 20 years. All right. His name Joyner Lucas. Uh, his, his guy was Will Smith. That was his biggest inspiration, right? Okay. Um, and he does this song called Will. And you being a director and a creator, you, you might actually really enjoy the video. So the video in the whole song was essentially why I created this podcast. Why I created this podcast, two reasons. Kobe Bryant dies in 2020. Him and his Gigi, right. his, his daughter, and then everybody on that plane. Um, one of my favorite, if you can't tell, one of my favorite franchises out in the world is the Ninja Turtles, right? I've got them all over, you know, my body. I've got them all over my room. Wife calls it a sickness. I call it a collection. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> you know, so I started when I started this podcast, this wasn't the original incarnation of this podcast. It was just it was going to be called the turtle tapes. And I was just going to talk to people that that um, had nothing to do with anything other than the Ninja Turtles that would typecast myself and then I would paint myself into a corner. And I like talking if you can't tell. And I would run out of people to talk to. So I'm watching the, the first Ninja Turtle movie, which in my opinion is a masterpiece. I'm extremely biased, but how that movie was shot, Steve Barron, the director, fucking beautiful. It was gritty. It was dark. It was just a beautiful movie, right? I got to rewatch it, man. I haven't seen this since I was a kid. Watch the first. The first all one right, all right. so grimy. It's so, it, you look, I've never been in New York City, but I can imagine like if, if I'm watching this, I'm like, you get that feeling like, fuck, dude, I'm in an alleyway. I'm in a sewer. These turtles might be real because the Jim Henson Productions created these suits, right? Yeah. So I see this name pop up and this name named Gary Proper. Uh, he died a couple years ago. So when I'm doing this podcast, I see this name comes up and this name, I was like, why don't I know this, this name? So I Google the name and he's like, oh, he lives in New Smyrna. New Smyrna is like an hour and a half away from me because I'm in Orlando. So I was like, oh, so I started Googling his name and I find out he died. Then I find out he's a big wave surfer. He was like this dude that was just huge in the surfing community. And <clears throat> He was the reason the Ninja Turtle movie got made, right? So he saw, yes, he saw this comic book in Detroit, I think is the story. He saw this comic book, the first issue of Ninja Turtles, um, before the cartoon series was made. Um, and he's going around trying to shop this. He's like, we, we got to make this movie. We got to make this movie. This is the next big project. This is the next big um, um, IP, whatever you want to call it. This is it. This is going to be it. Everybody laughed him out of the room. Everybody said the Ninja Turtles are not going to be shit. Ninja Turtle, what? Get the fuck out of here. Nobody's talking about turtles that know Kung Fu. Just like every, nobody liked Kung Fu in the Midwest and shit, right? So it, it's, 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 it, it was crazy. And I started doing all this research and I read this article, right? Of the, of the, it was his passing, his obituary and everything like that. And I just out of the blue, because the guy's cell phone number that was on the news journal, I call him. I'm like, hey man, I'd like to know more about this. And he's like, hey, I'll give you this guy's name. He was his manager. Call him. Long story short, it doesn't work out. He wanted to do something else. I wanted to do something else. So we split ways. Then I hear this song called Will, right, by Joyner Lucas. And he's got a line in there that says, 
we never know when legends are gone. Give them a rose, essentially while they're still here. I'm paraphrasing at this point. Give them a rose while they're still here. And I was like, I got to do this. I got to tell all the people that have touched my life throughout my entire life, my kids' life, my life, my wife's. I got to tell them how important they are to me, right? So the song comes on as Will. And it's Joyner Lucas going through Will Smith's entire movie catalog, right? So imagine that you're just like a Zoom. And as he's coming onto the screen, he's talking, he comes on as a fresh prince. And then you see him pop up as bad boys. And then you see him pop up as the fish from Shark Tale. And then you see him. Yeah. So he goes through his entire catalog. And I'm sitting here thinking, and I hear that line. And I'm like, dude, I got to... I gotta fucking do like it, it struck something in me. I was like, I gotta, I gotta fucking do this. So the whole reason I brought up that entire story was you gotta check out this man named Joyner Lucas. Okay. Phenomenal dude. His his album ADHD dropped in 2020, 2021, somewhere on there. Phenomenal. I can listen to that one, no skips, front to back, back to front, <laughs> just repeat, right? It's phenomenal. I'll send, like I said, I'll send you that link. Um <clears throat> We've only got a few more minutes, so uh, I'm going to get to some of the fans' questions. We had quite a bit, so I won't be able to get to all of them. So first thought, first thought that comes to your mind, just rattle it off, and we'll go from there. Um, right. We talked a little bit about Diego Luna. What was your favorite part uh, with Manolo in Book of Life? Uh, you know, like a lot of people, I tear up every time I watch him sing to the bull mm. uh, and sort of... Uh, accept a lot of stuff and, and, and come to terms with a lot of stuff. I think for, for every artist out there, uh, I think convincing your family that this is a worthy endeavor is a huge, huge bull you're going to have to fight. Yeah. Right. Most, most, you know, if your son goes to you, Hey dad, I want to be a rock star. Like that's not exactly uh, the odds are in their favor type of position in life. So that, that for me was, I got to basically die to convince everybody that what I'm doing is worth it. And Manolo had to convince his town and he had to convince his family and he had to come to terms with his past and he had to come to terms with his family being, uh, having done something he didn't believe in, but that's basically what allowed him to be at that point in his life. And so breaking that pattern and breaking that chain and breaking that, that dynasty. And, and for me, it's always been that you cannot let your culture define you. You yeah. cannot. You have to define your culture, right? If you try to carry your culture, it's going to crush you. Mm -hmm. So you have, to, you have to make it your own. Going back to food, you got to make your own enchiladas. Yes. Right, they're gonna taste different for everybody, but mm -hmm. they gotta they gotta come from you. So that that's my favorite moment in that movie. It's him basically accepting that he's different and accepting that he's not like his dad. And the easy path, if you if you break down that movie, he was really good at bullfighting, yeah. right? It's in his blood. The easy path would have been just to follow exactly what his dad wanted. So the struggle was never I can't bullfight. The struggle was, I don't want to bullfight. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in this, and this is not me. So that's my favorite moment. And a lot of people kind of have now added all these layers about, well, this is about the conquest in Mexico, and this is about animal cruelty, and this is about the patriarchy. And 
you know, as an artist, I go, yes, it's anything you want it to be. Yeah. But it is someone coming to terms with their history and their family and their past. Yeah. And it's, like I said, <clears throat> this one, I loved Maya and the Three. But I don't think I could live without Book of Life, man. Like if, if something, if a memory was taken away from me, it, it could be, I don't want to say it could be anything other than Book of Life, but it, it would, like I said, Book, like book of Life is fantastic. Um, which, oh, no, we already asked. We already talked tacos and enchiladas there. Um, this is one that I thought was cool because my wife had actually, because uh, I looked at her when we were watching Mine and the Three and the, the, the moon comes up. I know you're a big, 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 big Nightmare Before Christmas uh fan was that a nod to jack skellington because that's what it reminded me of yes yeah (laughs) i couldn't put that anywhere in writing because obviously that is a disney owned movie but uh i'm friends i'm you know incredibly thankful that i i i am now friendly with henry selick and i've gotten to tell him how big of a deal nightmare was for me and so in Book of Life, there's a giant nightmare Easter egg, which is Manolo's hair, the little curly cue. People are like, where does that come from? That's the upside down hill from there for Christmas. Really? Yeah. Dude, that's uh, so good. And I, I wasn't able to say anything about that because Fox and Disney were, you know, opposing studios. Uh-huh. But, now, but now Disney owns the Book of Life. So now I can reveal that one. Uh, but definitely the moon in Maya and the three is Jack Skellington. It's my little, it's my little love letter to Henry Selick and that movie. Beautiful. Um, I know I tagged you, but did you get a chance to listen to the Dean, uh, the Dean Taylor episode I did? No, I haven't. Okay. He was the art director for that one. He tells this really, really cool story about, um, him, Henry, and he said somebody else. They're literally chasing Tim Burton because they are in the throes of A Nightmare Before Christmas. We talked about it. I think it was like the last 30 minutes of the episode. <clears throat> They're literally chasing Tim Burton down. They're like, once we get him, you got two minutes. That's it. He's shooting Batman uh, Batman Returns. So he's. they're sitting there chasing him on bicycles. They've got all of these stacks of art that they're trying to get his fine, Tim Burton's final signature says, yes, you can go. We can do this. So he's flipping through it. He's, he's like pages and storyboards are going all over the trailer and shit. They got him for two minutes. And then Danny DeVito comes up dressed as the penguin in a golf cart. They've got blankets around so nobody can see them on the Warner Brothers set. And he comes and he knocks on the door. He says, daddy's home. He's like, fuck, I got to go. So Tim Burton runs out of there. But he tells a phenomenal story of just breaking down. We don't go too in-depth. He's going to come back on in a couple weeks. Um, but we're going to go more in-depth on The Nightmare Before Christmas. But like oh. I said, you're a real big fan. So you should check yeah, that one out. Huge fan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Henry gave me uh, Oogie Boogie Bug. And it's one of my most prized possessions. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, where are we at? Oh, uh, we got a lot of questions about Channing Tatum. Uh, I don't really. <laughs> I love Channing Tatum. So, like I told you, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on Jorge. I'm. I'm just a fan of this stuff. Um, a lot of them were just why Channing. Tatum. I think he's one of the funniest. He's charming as shit. He's handsome as fuck. Oh yeah. Uh, all right. So Channing. So Channing Tatum. Here's the. Here's the story behind Channing Tatum. So. I love Magic Mike. I and I told him to his face. I said, <laughs> I, "I'm like this is the Citizen Kane of male stripper movies," uh, and I told him right. So when we are deciding with casting, uh, I didn't write. Honestly, I did not write Joaquin for him. 
But the idea was whoever Manolo and Diego Luna is up against has to be a mix of Captain America with the sexiest man in the world. Oh, right? So that was basically the, the idea. Uh, and Channing Tatum at that time was making oh, that, uh, Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending. I think that's what it's called. So we go to Chicago to pitch to him the movie in his hotel room, by the way, 10 o'clock in the morning. They shoot those, they were shooting that movie, you know, most of that movie takes place at night. So he would basically stay up all night shooting. And we were getting him like, I guess he was coming out of a party or something, but he was, he was definitely drinking. Uh, and it's 10 a.m. and I don't want to offend Channing Tatum. So I start drinking. Uh, and then we, we start presenting the movie and I basically tell him about Joaquin and what it's about. It's a love story, it's a triangle, blah, 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 blah. And he's looking at, he's drinking, he's looking at me like, what the fuck is this, right? Because imagine if you've never seen the Book of Life and this unknown uh, chubby Mexican guy is in your hotel room drinking your beer, uh, telling you about this crazy Mexican movie where you play a wooden soldier uh, that keeps yelling his own name. So he's he's listening to me and I could see his face, this, this confusion, right? Yeah. So the pitch is done and he goes, hey, um, can I have the room with Jorge? And so, you know, it was a studio executive and it was somebody, somebody other people were there. So he, he's just with me and he like takes me aside and he's like, Jorge, you know I'm not Mexican, right? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, no, no, Chani, I like I I know. And he's like, look, man, I love this thing, but are you sure I'm the right guy for this? And I'm like, look, you need to represent the sexiest man in the universe. You are, and you're gonna be Captain Latin America at this thing, <laughs> right? You're, you're blue blood, you're wearing blue. So I start basically telling him all this stuff and you have all these dad issues and you're trying to live under his shadow and you're really insecure. And the more I tell him, the more he goes, if you think I can do this, then I can do it. And that was it. So we, we, we cast him, we go to the first record. I think he was in New Orleans for the first record because he was doing uh, 21 Jump Street. And it was amazing. It was, you know, again, that's another person that I, in my head, I had an idea of who he was. And they tell you a lot of times, don't meet your heroes. But here was someone who was, was only, not only was he more charming and funny, but he's more handsome in person. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a heterosexual as fuck. And yet I was like, holy shit. You know, <laughs> him and Diego Luna, you could walk by lights and they're, they're, they're self-lit. They're just, they're just beautiful human beings. Uh, but anyways, that, that's where Diego and, and Channing. And then they had, they had hung out and partied at a festival in Cancun. And so I also do a lot of research and I go, well, which actors get along, which actors don't get along, which actors have naturally gravitated towards each other. And they were buddies. So I was like, this is perfect because I need these guys to have that chemistry. That's beautiful. Um, 
last one, but I want to tell you a real quick story. Uh, Megacon Orlando a couple years ago. Do you know Stephen Amell, the guy that played Arrow, Green Arrow, for the DC? Yes. So handsome, handsome man, right? So oh, yeah. we get there, and then my wife was a fan of his and a fan of Jason Momoa, just like every other female in this world. Everybody. Yeah, everybody. Momoa, right? <laughs> Even my female. mom's like, ooh, Aquaman. <laughs> So uh, it was our anniversary, and I was like, "Hey, let's let's uh, I'll get you a picture with Jason Momoa. But would you like to take a picture with me with Stephen Mel?" She's like, "Fuck yeah, I'll take a picture with Stephen Mel. He's sexy." I was like, "All right, well, we didn't bury the lead at all. You could just you know build me up here. Don't build Stephen up. He's got enough. He's handsome, right? He's got abs. I've got gut, right?" So we get there, and then he's walking towards us, and he's smiling. And then he goes and he puts his arm around me. I'm like, you got to be the handsomest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. I was like, I've seen you on TV for the last few years. You're more damn charming. You're more pretty in, in real life. And his fucking face blush. And he's like, you know, you're not the first man that's told me that today. And I was like, I'm probably not going to be the last one either because you're charming as hell, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, last question here. Yes. If you weren't the creator of both Book of Life and Maya, right? You're just a fan. I know that's hard to kind of probably separate, right? So it's a hypothetical question at this point. If you could go back and watch any of those two projects for the first time as a fan, which one are you selecting? Fuck. I think Book of Life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, because, I mean, there's no Maya without Book of Life. And Book of Life... People don't remember when it came out. It was it was a little shocking. People were like, "What the fuck is this? This yeah. looks so different. The themes are really weird." And like, I remember marketing people going, "We can't sell this movie. It's about dead Mexican toys. Like, what are you doing? How the fuck did this get made?" And a lot of the comments that the kids in Book of Life made, like, "What kind of movie is this? We're just kids." Those yeah. are comments we got from in the room with executives. <laughs> where they would read the the script and go the main character dies like literally all that came from those meetings oh that's awesome man uh like i said at the beginning of this man you are a very important pillar of my animation man you're on my mount rushmore uh i hope you had fun man because i know i had fun i know it was I love it first. yeah man so i really appreciate you taking some time for me today uh is there anything you'd like to tell the fans before we uh, before we sign off here, dude? You, uh, Julian, you have you have the gift. You have the gift, mi amigo. The Thank gift you. to gab and the gift to have natural, organic conversations and 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 really good at segueing and really good at steering the ship. Uh, so I think I don't know how many of these you've done, but dude, you're on to something here. 74, 75. Yeah, you yeah. you got it. You you it's fucking there. Uh, and you know, anybody, uh, I would say if anybody on the spectrum, uh, use me as an, as an example of fuck, if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. And anybody who is from a culture that feels that is not represented a lot, use me as an example. If I can do it, you can fucking do it. Uh, anybody who goes, well, now I have a family and I can't balance the two. No, you can, you can have all of it. You can have all of it. And the, the secret is that there is no secret. You just got to work really hard. That's it. That's literally every single person you know who's successful, no one just stumbled onto stuff. 
you just work really hard. And obviously it takes luck and networking, but even that, I would say it doesn't get you as far as just making stuff and trying really hard because wanting it is, it's, that's just fuel, but that doesn't get you anywhere. The drive is you. Beautiful, man. Well, he's been Jorge. I've been Julian. This has been the What's In My Head podcast. This has been our Cinco de Mayo episode, and this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's In My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.